That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's the Bill Press Pod, and you are welcome to it. I know it's hard to believe, but Joe Biden hasn't yet been in office 100 days, and already the first book is out about the 2020 campaign and how he won the election. Uh, yes, sorry, Donald Trump, but Joe Biden did, in fact, win the election. The name of the book is Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency by Amy Parnes, who covers politics for The Hill, and Jonathan Allen, national political correspondent for NBC News. If you're a political junkie like me, and you wouldn't be listening if you weren't, you'll love this book and learn a lot that you didn't know about the ups and downs of the 2020 campaign even though we all followed it every step of the way. We caught up with Amy Parnes and John Allen shortly after they launched their new book. John Allen, Amy Barnes, congratulations. Uh, good to see you or good to talk to you. Uh, and so excited uh, about the new book, Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, Bill. Well, so, uh, you know, we last time we talked was your last book, Shattered which certainly uh, was the best account of the 2016 campaign, uh, your best-selling book, Shattered. Uh, Carol doesn't think this one will be as good as Shattered because we're not in it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, I'll pass that along. And her chicken cacciatore, right? <laughs> several meals. Uh, but the new book, Lucky, will, is certainly uh, the best account, I think will prove to be the best account of the 2020 campaign. I must tell you, I have read every word of it. I loved it, all 413 pages. Uh, I had trouble with only two words, and both of those words are on the cover. So I want to start there. Let's start with the word barely. Okay, uh, Joe Biden won by uh, 7 million more votes than Donald Trump, a total of 81 million votes, more than any other presidential candidate in history. He got 306 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 232. Who wants to start? How can you say he barely won? I'm on it, Bill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Go so for you're, it, John. You're absolutely right. 81 million people showed up to vote for Joe Biden against Donald Trump, uh, some mixture of the two. Um, and the, the electoral vote margin was the same as uh, Trump's win in 2016 uh, that Trump said was a landslide. I think most people thought that Trump's victory in 2016 was not a landslide. Uh, if you'll recall, uh, he won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the pivotal uh, electoral vote states in that election by about 77,000. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of them were pretty pretty tight on a state-by-state -state basis. And that's the formation uh, for the barely part uh, in the subtitle of the book, which is that Trump's electoral, I'm sorry, Biden's electoral college margin uh, could have been undone by Donald Trump with 43,000 votes 
over the states of Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin. One of them was a quarter point victory for Biden. One was a third of a point, and one was two thirds of a point. Uh, had Trump won those states, you get a 269-269 electoral college tie. It gets thrown to the House of Representatives, where uh, the Republicans have a majority of the House delegations and uh, would would have made Donald Trump president again. And even if you want to get him to 270 electoral votes, uh, he would have needed about 22,000 more in, in Nebraska's second district to pull off an extra electoral vote. Um, either way you slice it, that is closer than the 2016 election in terms of what it would have taken for the loser to, to flip the electoral college in their direction. Um, we firmly believe that that's a very narrow margin. And the reason that we firmly believe it is because we talked to the campaign operatives <laughs> in Joe Biden's campaign on election night, uh, the next day, the next day, um, you know, weeks afterward. And what they said was, this election was a lot closer than they expected it to be. Um, some, some of them uh, revealed, you know, their thinking or that of others they were talking to high up in the campaign, um, you know, on election night, as they're biting their nails, uh, as they're wondering how they're going to explain uh, to the Democratic Party how they blew this one, um, you know, there were were several hours on election night. I think until basically Fox called Arizona for Biden, where both campaigns looked at the numbers coming in and believed that they were in a good position to win, and also could possibly lose. Um, and um, and so you know, you go through all of that, and then you recall that it took four days for the networks. Uh, to feel comfortable calling this election. And so, yes, you can look at 81 million votes in the popular vote to Trump's 74 million. But the way I think about that is like, if you're, if you're playing chess, you know, measuring your success by how many of the other person's uh, pieces you've taken rather than uh, whether you checkmated them. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And in this case, the Democrats took a lot more pieces and one checkmate, but it, it was so very close. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, Amy, let me throw you the second word, which is the title itself, lucky. Again, Joe Biden, he's been up 10 times and he's won 10 times in, in various uh, elections on the ballot. Um, he, at a time when nobody gave him a chance, right, Joe, in this, in this election, Joe Biden said, I'm not going to travel. I'm going to stay in the basement. Um, I'm not going to go for the Green New Deal, you know, I'm not going to go for defunding the police. You say, in, uh, both of you say at the end of the book that with his notion of restoring the soul of the nation, he may have read what the country was looking for better than anybody else on the Democratic side. So isn't that a little more than luck? Aren't you selling him a little short? Uh, we're not really using lucky in the pejorative sense. It's more like we're posing a question um, was Joe Biden lucky? Was the country lucky? Um, I think we, in the book, we kind of take you through to show you that both are probably true. I mean, we leave that up to your interpretation, to the reader's interpretation. But I think, you know, we take you in scene after scene where he does sort of have luck at his back and he does, and wind at his back, and he does kind of have these lucky breaks at times, um, things are that are out of his control and out of his reach. And so I think it encapsulates all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I know some people say, no, I mean, this man has been anything but lucky um, in his life, but, and that is true, but we, we are taking a look at the election and how close it was and how nothing really moved the needle 
um, until, you know, very few things did. And so anything, it could have gone either way. As John talked about, it was so close. Um, and that's what people don't really realize. Everyone's so focused on the popular vote. Um, but when you look at the Electoral College, it was so much closer. And he did get some lucky breaks along the way. And so, Bill, I mean, you you are a progressive and a divinity student. <laughs> and Former, former divinity for, student. Former divinity student. So perhaps you would um, explain it. Uh, more as the the breath of God at at Joe Biden's back than um, than luck, but we we take you you know sort of through scene after scene in this book of moments, particularly in the Democratic primary, where everything could have gone completely sideways for Biden, yeah. and there were um, sort of external forces that were completely unpredictable. I mean, you know, just for example, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg's Buttigieg's team gets wind of a of a bad poll question, not even a question that was bad, but one person who was called and Buttigieg's name was not on the list of people that they could uh, choose for the Des Moines Register poll, which everyone in Iowa pay, pays attention to as a bellwether of what's going to happen. And Buttigieg's team goes through this incredible, like sort of political campaign to get CNN to not release the right. gold standard poll. Um, that has Joe Biden in a distant fourth place with like 13%, which means that for two days, he doesn't have to listen to that right before the caucus, doesn't have to listen to how he's on track to lose. Um, you know, the caucuses themselves, if folks remember, uh, there was not a winner declared on caucus night because the caucus app failed. Um, you know, the reporting, the result reporting from the Democratic Party in Iowa didn't work. I mean, these are things that just, you know, um, that are hard to to sort of reconcile as uh, you know things that you would have been able to foresee. Um, you know, there's a moment where Elizabeth Warren decides that she's just so angry about the idea of Mike Bloomberg, she's just going to destroy him on a debate stage, and that it, uh, you know Bloomberg is looming over Biden's shoulder at that point. There are a lot of Democrats that think this is before the Nevada caucus, is before the South Carolina primary. Um, you know, the, there are a lot of Democrats that think that. That Biden might be replaced as Bloomberg is sort of the by Bloomberg as the establishment favorite, and Elizabeth Warren is just she's like I'm not going to let this billionaire buy his way into the election, and not only does she decide to do that, but she executes, um, you know, sort of a hockey goon takeout <laughs> of Mike Bloomberg, you know, sort of hit upside the head with the, the stick from behind, and you sort of go through all these things, and we take them through you in the through take you through them in the book. Um, sort of moments where things could have gone sideways for Biden and didn't. And then, of course, uh, you know, we quote Anita Dunn talking to an associate after COVID hits, saying COVID is the best thing that ever happened to Joe Biden. Right. Um, uh, let, let me, you couldn't predict the pandemic. No, let me let me pick up there, because I was going to ask Amy, when you mentioned about luck along the way, in a perverse way, uh, the coronavirus was lucky for Biden, Amy, right? I mean, if co if Trump... Let me ask you this question. If Trump had done better on the coronavirus, took it seriously, showed some leadership, yeah. he could easily have won. Yeah. Would you agree? Yes. And I not only agree. I mean, I agree because we talked to people inside the Biden campaign who agreed with that. If he would have acted just a little more presidential, if he wouldn't have told people to inject bleach, um, <laughs> if you know, there were a million things that he could have done better. Um, even when he got out of the hospital, if he would have just said, I've been through it, it's really tough. 
Um, we need to kind of hunker down and get through this together. But of course he didn't. But, you know, um, I, I do think that that was a big, um, you know, and he, we also have a scene in the book. Uh, this is so Biden focused, this book, but we also have a lot of Trump in there. Oh yeah. We have a scene in the book where he's talking, Trump is talking to his campaign manager at the time, Brad Parscale, and he's not taking the virus very seriously. And Parscale is kind of warning him, this could be your undoing. And he doesn't believe him. He's like, what does this have to do with politics? Um, and I think he thought that if the economy was good and everything was sort of intact, that he could still win. So if he would have taken any of that, like a little more seriously, I think he could have won. Um, but as John mentioned, you know, we do have a scene in the book where Anita Dunn, who is Biden's senior advisor, is essentially, she tells an associate, COVID is the best thing that ever happened to him, meaning Biden. And I think she says that because a lot of his advisors were worried um, that he he has this tendency for these verbal blunders and these missteps and um, gaffes. And this sort of COVID took him off the campaign trail. And it allowed for him to kind of let Trump implode um, while taking kind of a back seat and, and the spotlight wasn't on him. And I think that was good because there could have been um, an opportunity or two or three where he he did make one of those verbal blunders and it could have, um, it really wouldn't have been a good thing for him. Mm -hmm. I think, I'm not sure whether it's one of you or someone else that you quote in the book makes the point that Trump was his own worst uh, enemy. So, so John, <laughs> it sounds contradictory, but did Biden win this election or did Trump lose this election? I think more Trump lost this election. I mean, uh, he did everything that he possibly could to alienate um, any persuadable voter. Uh, he did everything he could to ratchet up the Democratic base and get get Democrats excited to come out and vote against him. And look, I mean, you know, partially as a cautionary tale for Democrats, a couple of things. Number one, Trump did get 74 million votes. So while uh, Biden uh, increased the Democratic vote total across the country by more than Trump did, uh, I think a lot of Democrats were surprised to see Trump increase his, uh, you know, his vote total by about 17 percent across the country after four years of conducting mm -hmm. himself the way he did. And look, we, you know, when we talk about lucky, the other thing is we, you know, we believe that in a lot of ways, luck is the residue of design. Uh, as Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who signed Jackie Robinson to the first. Uh, major league contract for an African American player, you know, had once said, and the, you know, the idea is that like Biden was in a good position to take advantage of his breaks, and at the outset, he he kind of understood where I think understood where the country was and was able to frame his campaign around that, and that all credits to him. Um, but it, I think, it would have been impossible for him to predict the degree to which the incompetence and lack of character and lack of compassion that he saw in Trump would reveal itself in such incredibly stark relief as a result of COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, it just, like I said before, it's just, it, that was unpredictable and it was so helpful to Biden's message. Right. That Trump was out there doing all the things that he was doing um, and, and never really stopping to talk about the human toll of this disease. You, you, um, in the book, you, you cite several moments that really did make a difference. Some, some key turning points. Uh, Amy, how important for Biden was it 
his announcement, I'm going to appoint a woman as my vice presidential nominee? Um, I think it was really important. And as we kind of learn in the book, that was something that he had wanted to do even before he announced a run for the presidency. He kind of kicked the idea around in 2018 um, with some advisors. And I think he always thought that was a good idea. He even um, at one point, and we have we report this in the book, he talked about in the 2016 cycle, if he was mm-hmm. going to run, he talked to Elizabeth Warren about um, possibly picking her for um, he basically his offered her the job, didn't exactly. he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and she turns it down. <laughs> um, but you know, just to show you, he was really thinking about this for a long time. And I think you know, we have a very interesting moment in the book where um, he is, you know, everyone expects him to pick a black um, female president because of all of the um, protests last year around. Um, racial justice and justice. And so I think um, we have the scene where he calls Jim Clyburn and he is essentially asking him for permission to maybe look around and pick someone else. Um, Maybe he wasn't so completely enamored with Kamala Harris at the time. Um, And his aides tell us that he really liked Gretchen Whitmer a lot more than um, was let on during the election um, he flew her in at the last minute to talk mm-hmm. to her. He closely, he identified with her in many ways and felt like she was very similar to his politics. So I think that he was considering people, um, other candidates up until the last minute, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. Right. And John, uh, Amy mentions James Clyburn, right? If there's, if there's anybody responsible for what I get from your book, if there's anybody responsible for Joe Biden being where he is today, it's Congressman Clyburn. Do you agree? Um, I, with the caveat that I wouldn't take agency away from Biden. In, oh, in, I'm sorry. Yeah, of course, yeah, Biden but, himself. But, right. but, half but, in Biden. Of, but in terms of anyone else, absolutely. I mean, I think anybody who's watched politics for a long time was shocked at the speed at which with, at, with which the Democratic Party coalesced behind Joe Biden after his victory in, in the South Carolina primary. And that doesn't the margin of that victory and the quick coalescing of the Democratic Party, not everybody, obviously, but um, several of the candidates and a lot of donors and a lot of voters, um, that doesn't happen without a big margin for for Biden in South Carolina. If he beats Bernie Sanders by a couple points there, um, you know, I, I think Sanders is really well positioned for Super Tuesday. But it ends up being that Biden gets about forty nine percent of the vote, and I, I can't recall offhand, but I think. Sanders was around 20%. It was basically a 30-point win. Um, Biden had been pushing Clyburn for an endorsement for months, and Clyburn had been holding off and uh, and holding off and holding off. And, uh, you know, we report uh, on, on this scene uh, right before the South Carolina primary debate where, uh, where Biden meets with Clyburn on the USS Yorktown, which is a ship uh, harbored in Charleston, and um, and Clyburn's giving him some advice on what he needs to do in the campaign, but also Clyburn is um, you know says to Biden, "I'm going to endorse you, uh, but I really want you to go out on the debate stage tomorrow night and say that you're going to nominate a black woman for the Supreme Court." Because in Clyburn's mind, a Supreme Court pick is more important than a vice presidential pick. You know, in his in his estimation, you know, Thurgood Marshall has a much uh, a much more solid place in history than, say, an Al Gore. 
Um, somebody was vice president. Um, and, and so Biden, you know, says, hey, that's interesting. He goes back, talks to his team about it. His team says, no, 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 don't do it. Don't block yourself into that. You know, it's a terrible idea. Clyburn's going to endorse you anyway. Biden goes out on the debate stage. There are several opportunities for him to say that he's going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. He doesn't do it. Clyburn's sitting in the audience getting agitated. He bolts out of his chair. His friends look at him and they're like, oh, he's 79 years old. He probably has to find a bathroom. <laughs> not, not true. Uh, Clyburn rushes backstage during the commercial break of the debate, finds Biden and says to him, don't you, do, don't you dare leave this stage without saying you're going to nominate a black woman for the Supreme Court. So Biden goes back out and sort of awkwardly pushes that out in the final moments of the debate that he's going to do that. Um, And then you see the endorsement from Clyburn. It's not just like some paper endorsement. Hey, I like Joe Biden. He's great. He gives this very emotional endorsement. Uh, He predicts that Biden's going to win by a lot. He says his late wife loved Joe Biden. Um, And what you see, and I think the game agrees with me on this, Clyburn's a little bit of, of a mixture between a bellwether and an influencer of African-American votes, right? He understands Biden's likely to win his state. He's not wasting an endorsement on somebody who's going to lose his state. But it's still possible in his mind Biden doesn't win if Clyburn can't help uh, coalesce African-American voters around Joe Biden, not only in South Carolina, but in other, uh, in other states. And you see the closeness in this book that Clyburn has and the the influence he has with other members of the Congressional Black Caucus and within many of their districts. And so that really touches off this this incredible, um, you know, domino effect for uh, for Biden, where by by the end of the night on Super Tuesday, he's he's really got a controlling lead. Right. Uh, And Amy Clyburn, uh, according to your book, also had told and we remember this from the campaign, he said publicly, um, I would like Biden to name a an African American running mate, but um, doesn't matter as long as it's a woman, right? But yeah, I prefer an African American. So uh, that ended up with Kamala Harris. Um, how would you rate her importance as a boost to Biden, the ticket and the chances? I definitely think um, it brought some excitement. Um, it was just interesting to see how much tension there was between the contenders to be VP, they all kind of were at war with one another, uh, another didn't really like each other as we sort of get into a little bit. Um, and I think in the end he made the right choice. He, he sort of felt, I think like he had to, um, even though, you know, he, he was close, his son was close with Kamala. Um, and he knew her in that way, even though he felt maybe that he could go another way. And like I talked about earlier, kind of that, that conversation he has with Clyburn, um, my head and my heart, my head is telling me to do this. And my heart is telling me to do this. It was like a, I'm sure it was a, um, a tussle inside, um, where he was trying to figure out what, what's best. But I think in the end, she did add some excitement to his campaign. Um, and it sort of needed that at the time. Right. So before we take a break, there's one one thing that uh, I, I I was really st- stunned almost to learn from your book, uh, and that is um, Barack Obama uh, didn't it privately doesn't seem to have been as enthusiastic, shall we say, about Joe Biden's candidacy as we might have thought publicly. John, um, I mean, yes. he, he hung back. Right. He was on the sidelines. He didn't endorse until. 
pretty late. I mean, it turns out that uh, Barack Obama is a better candidate than a political analyst, I guess. Which, <laughs> if you're if you're running for president, you would rather be a better political candidate than than an analyst. Um, but yeah, so if if you go back to 2015, you know, and 2016, um, Obama encouraged Biden to not run, in so many words when Biden was thinking about getting into the race with uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And and that really stung Biden a lot. Um, and then, you know, as we report in this book, uh, Biden comes out kind of early in this campaign cycle and says he told Obama he didn't want his endorsement this time. And uh, what we were, we were told by, um, by folks close to Obama, very close to Obama, was that that conversation never happened. Biden knew that Obama wasn't going to endorse him. <laughs> But Biden never asked Obama not to endorse him. Um, And, you know, Obama's view of Biden um, was that not only was he likely to lose, but that he was in danger of embarrassing himself and tarnishing not only Biden's legacy, but Obama's legacy. We have a scene where Obama invites uh, Biden aides into his office, you know, shortly before Biden gets into the race and and basically says to them, "I, I want you to stop him, you know, prevent him from falling flat on his face. You know, I don't. I don't want to see him hurt himself. Um, and then you go through all of 2019, and Biden is struggling in Iowa. Anybody who saw him in the, on the campaign trail in Iowa just could tell that there wasn't energy for him. And and really, he didn't seem to have a lot of energy on the campaign trail. And you know, Obama kind of goes through what one of one person very close to him said to us was like a flirtation with a bunch of different candidates. I mean, at first he likes Beto O'Rourke, and then. When Elizabeth Warren looks like she's taking off, um, you know, we have a scene where where Obama meets uh, with some black executives, uh, corporate executives at a, a nice brasserie in, <laughs> in Manhattan, as former presidents do. And, um, and you know, he's asked, what do you think about uh, Warren? What do you think about Biden? What do you think about Buttigieg? And he says, he gives this like sort of long sermon to these black corporate executives about uh, about how Warren would be a good nominee, and he does, he stops short of uh, giving an endorsement. He says basically, uh, "You you notice I didn't endorse her," and the, and the joke there is that he had basically just endorsed her without using the word. Yeah. And then he goes through Pete Buttigieg, and he says, uh, "You know, he's kind of making fun of Pete, and he's like, you know, he's thirty eight, but he looks thirty. He's uh, the mayor of a small town. He's gay, and he's short, which is just kind <laughs> of a, a shocking thing, right? That you wouldn't have expected that Obama would say, and then." He wraps up his presentation, and someone says to him from the audience, "You forgot Joe Biden." Um, and you know, Obama really didn't have faith that Biden was going to do as well as he did. But once Biden took off, um, you know, following the South Carolina primary, Biden uh, Obama realized that he was in a good place to win the nomination, and he needed a little push from inside the party. And Obama started making phone calls. He made, you know, he called Amy mm-hmm. Klobuchar, he called Pete Buttigieg. Uh, we know that in that period, um, he was in contact with Bernie Sanders, um, and he he gets off the sidelines to try to help that coalescing of the Democratic Party behind Biden. Finally, right. Uh, the book is Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency, John Allen, Jonathan Allen, and Amy Parnes. Uh, we will take a quick break uh, and come back and talk about what we see about Joe Biden now uh, and where we go from here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast with Amy Parnes and John Allen is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers. 
1.7 million members strong, the AFT teachers, that's K through 12 and higher education as well, all under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten, who kept our kids uh, entertained and informed during the long pandemic uh, remotely, and now are helping everybody get back into the classroom. We salute them for being on the front lines and for doing the Lord's work in American classrooms every day around the country. Uh, encourage you to check out their website at aft.org, and we thank the members of the AFT for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Back, we're talking with the authors of uh, the new book about the and the first book out about the 2020 election. Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes. The book is Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. A link to buy the book up on the uh, notes here to the website. Highly recommend it. Even if you followed it day by day, hour by hour, which I did, you will still learn a lot uh, from uh, John and Amy's uh, new book. Amy, um. Uh, let's talk a little inside baseball. Sure. Obviously, the, you got this book out pretty fast. Right? It's only March of 2021. Uh, Joe Biden's only been in office 50 days. So you definitely started writing it before the election was over. When did you start? We started writing this book, probably doing reporting on it in late um, 2019, um, mm-hmm. and then wrote all through the year, kind of in real time, actually, which was a first. We had sort of done a similar thing with our last book, Shattered, um, but we were on a quicker deadline here 
And um, so we, we just wrote as it was happening, which was fascinating and also quite difficult, especially during a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you talk to people during the campaign, uh, you couldn't report on what they told you then, right? So what was your deal? Yeah, so we, John and I, this is our third book, and we always um, speak to our sources with a caveat that this that none of the interviews will come out or none of the information will come out before the election. And so, and we do that obviously for the purposes of candor, um, you know, that uh, we would probably not get much if we were <laughs> um, talking to people on the record or even on background uh, before the election. Everyone is kind of worried about their candidate at the time and how their candidate will do. So we've always sort of had that agreement with sources um, and, you know, so, which is a little bit tricky because we're both um, reporters and um, we obviously want to share things as we're hearing them. But uh, but we we hang on in a way for the book. Right. So, John, if I read the book correctly, you were both of you were talking to people, campaign managers, campaign insiders, even on election night as they were watching the returns come in and trying to read them. Um, a, is that correct? And B, if so, when did either side know that they had won or lost? That's a great question, Bill. So A, it's true. We were talking to people inside uh, camp, inside the campaign on election night. Um, there were, and we go through this in the book, there were hours on election night where both the Trump team sitting in the map room at the White House and the Biden team spread out in different places in Wilmington and Philadelphia and the rest, um, where both of them are looking at the results coming in and thinking to themselves, we have a pretty good chance of winning this election, and we could also lose this election. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that um, that's sort of an, a kind of an insidery thing that people can see on the outside is, uh, much like the 2016 election, where Hillary Clinton's team went silent on Twitter um, you know, around eight o'clock at night, there was a lot of silence um, from from sort of Democratic insiders on Twitter uh, around the same time period in uh, 2020. And some of the campaign operatives we were talking to, was, you know, were saying like we're hearing from our friends that they feel like this is deja vu, and there was concern at at pretty much all levels. I mean, everybody has different levels of concern, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, everybody reacts differently. Some people are more optimistic. Some people are less optimistic, whatever. But um, there was reason to believe, you know, A, from the Biden perspective, the bottom had not dropped out. Um, even as they're watching Florida returns come in and they look so much better for Trump uh, than, than the Democrats were expecting, they're like, the bottom hasn't dropped out here. We're not in a position where we were sure, you know, we're sure we're going to lose. And they also knew that it wasn't going to be a blowout in their favor. Um, and they're, so they're, they're really watching all of the returns very closely. The same thing's going on in Trump world. And then at, I think, 11 o'clock Eastern, roughly, a little bit after 11 o'clock Eastern, Fox News calls Arizona. And it's the first state that Biden wins that had been in Trump's electoral column, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, before from 2016. And in the map room at the White House, the Trump aides are going nuts. They're like, this thing is so – they can't call this. There's no way to know this with certainty. Donald Trump is on the phone in the residence, and people have been telling him all night, congratulations, Mr. President. You're obviously going to win a second term. They watched the Florida results come in. And so his aides rush up to meet him in the residence, 
and tell them what's going on. And they're like, they're like, look, you know, Fox is wrong. You know, there's no way they can call this. What's interesting is, and we report um, in the book is the same thing is going on inside the Biden campaign where his top uh, data analytics person, uh, her name is Becca Siegel. She's like 28 years old, uh, brilliant young woman. Um, she is uh, watching this stuff come in. She sees Fox make the call and she goes, there's no way they could make this call right now. Um, and But at the same time, it sort of gives them uh, a little bit burst a little of confidence, lift. Yeah. a little bit of a lift and a little bit of an understanding that they now have um, a, a messaging advantage that they didn't have before. Fox has called it. Um, if you'll recall in 2016, Fox called Wisconsin for uh, Trump very early, and uh, Megan Kelly was on Fox that night, and she said, there goes her blue wall. And that was sort of the moment where, where things started to really crumble for Hillary Clinton. So, you know, there's a little bit of a parallel there. But um, yeah, I mean, all of these folks that were, were high up on the campaigns, like, they know how close this election was. <laughs> They were chewing their nails off, um, and there was concern in the Biden campaign on election night, even as you know as late as two o'clock in the morning um, on on Wednesday. You know, I guess technically the day after the election, uh, Greg Schultz, who was his first campaign manager and continued on with the campaign, um, you know, was walking home to his hotel and thinking to himself, "How am I going to explain to all of these Democratic elites that I?" that I told them for years, like Joe Biden's the guy, if he wins the nomination, he's going to win the presidency. How am I going to explain to 3000 people on my contact list that I lied to them? And you point out that Joe Biden himself didn't really accept that he had won until Saturday, right? When yeah, he wouldn't let himself believe it. Yeah. I mean, people kept telling him that he had won and he he didn't want to believe it until the end, until the very end when it was actually called. And he's superstitious, Bill. I mean, like, you know, you hear him talk about fortune and fate and faith and, you know, and, and again, you know, sort of back to this idea, like, is, is, is it the divine breath of God or is it you know, the ball bounced in your direction? I, I don't know. Some people are more religious. Some people are less religious. But, you know, he is somebody who is superstitious and thinks about fortune and the vagaries of that. Um, you know, over the course, not only of his life, but, you know, in politics. And so one of the reasons that we called the book Lucky is we thought it fit with Joe Biden. Like he understands better than anybody else that you can work your tail off, you can have a good plan, uh, you can execute on everything that you want to. And to be successful, like sometimes you just need that little extra bit of magic dust around you. Yeah. So just a couple of final questions here. As we see Joe Biden now in the White House, uh, what do we know about Joe Biden, the president, from what we learned about Joe Biden, the candidate? He certainly is a person who likes to get things done. He likes to work across the aisle. He likes to compromise, or willing certainly to compromise. And uh, is that a politics of the past, or is that still a, a, a politics that's possible today with Joe Biden? What do you guys well think? It's sort of TBD, I think, Bill. I think when you look at what's happened in his first days in office, I mean, he he kept one of his messages during the campaign was unity and breaking the fever. And, you know, he's the one who can reach across party lines, but he hasn't really been able to do that yet. And I don't think the party 
want. You have to admit that he tried. He's tried. Yeah, he he has tried. And I think that, you know, it was so tough for you and I both covered Barack Obama at the time. It was so hard for Obama to do that. Um, he also tried and failed and didn't go back. You know, he, he had these cocktail parties and tried to invite, uh, Republicans over for the Super Bowl. That didn't really work. Biden is a different kind of guy. He, he knows these guys, he knows what will, what it'll take to, uh, work with them. Um, I, I anticipate that he will continue to try, um, a lot longer than his, than, uh, his former partner. But I think, it's going to be a huge test for him and it'll be interesting to see how uh, the left handles it and whether he um, stops doing that because it's angering a lot of people within the party. And John, he's also shown uh, a willingness to go big and bold without Republicans if necessary. Yeah. I mean, I sort of look at this stimulus, the COVID relief and stimulus package here as something that shouldn't be hard for Democrats to get on board with, right? I mean, it, like in a way, um, it's it's economic support for people who have been harmed by the coronavirus um, and, you know, for state budgets and for a variety of other things. Uh, you know, for instance, the Teamsters got a huge pension provision in there um, that is going to, uh, to ensure the retirements of, um, you know, countless uh, people who have been working hard for all their lives, who who saw their pensions in, in danger of going belly up, but like this shouldn't be a difficult proposition for the Democrats. I think what's going to be harder for Biden is is the degree you know the degree to which he moves into territory um, that is more divisive for Democrats. There certainly progressives were upset about things that weren't in uh, this COVID relief bill or that got plucked out. Whether you're talking about the minimum wage increase or um, you know, Joe Manchin negotiating down unemployment <laughs> benefits. Um, but, you know, the broad scope of the $2 trillion is really something that Democrats agree on. I think that the the interesting thing that you see in this book with Biden and uh, and that you will continue to see in his presidency is he is somebody who's seeking to find a place where he is the mainstream. And in the election, I think that was more about making sure that to the, to the extent that there were persuadable voters, they saw him as a, a more reasonable uh, and mainstream alternative to Trump. And I think it included a lot of Republicans um, who were uh, who had already given up on Trump, who had already turned their backs on Trump. And, and Biden was more able to simply just get them to continue to adhere to, to his side and, and not go over to Trump. But what you see now as he's going to navigate Congress, I think he's going to use the left as a foil a little bit. Um, he's going to want to be able to show that he is pushing back on the left a little bit so that he can be seen as in the middle. And people will recognize that from, uh, you know, a little bit from the Clinton presidency. In some ways, I think Biden is more smooth about it. I think he is somebody who likes to tell people that he shares their values even when he's not able to deliver on their policy. And we'll have to see how long the goodwill and the honeymoon for Joe Biden lasts, because I think it was very strong in the election. I mean, you know, the the Bernie Sanders faction of the Democratic Party came in behind Joe Biden, put their priorities in the back seat, and showed up to the polls and sent in their mail-in ballots. Um, and so that, I think it'll last for a little while, but I, I don't know how long it lasts. Right. Uh, you've been very good with your time. But Amy, I have to ask you, everybody seems to think um, I saw a Max Boot in the Washington Post, uh, uh, a recent column about 
Kamala Harris is the perfect candidate for 2024. Everybody seems to assume that Joe Biden is there for one term and one term only. Should we uh, jump to that conclusion? Or do you think he might go for his second term? I, my personal opinion is I don't see him doing that. I think he always sort of positioned this as a transitional presidency. I think that it's, um, it has that feel. Um, I think he is, has been very, it's been interesting to watch, uh, vice president Harris in the room with him, um, for all the big important moments, she's directly Mm -hmm. next to him. Um, and they've been telegraphing the Biden Harris uh, administration. And they are very um, keen on sort of putting her in the right places. And I think part of it is he's almost looking to keep an eye on her, obviously. But also, I think they're looking to pass the baton on in some way. And um, I think that he will, he'll help her in, in whatever way possible going forward. I just, I think he has to kind of be a little bit wary about whether she starts campaigning very soon, kind of checks out of the White House business. <laughs> uh, Judd, do you agree? I mean, look, you know, you get there, it's a comfortable place to live. You got Air Force One. Do you think he gives it up that easily? Yeah, I disagree with Amy a little bit here. It's not that I'm saying that he will run for reelection, but uh, let's let's keep in mind that for at least half his life, Joe Biden was in pursuit of the presidency yeah. um, in you know, varying degrees of energy. And uh, you're right. It's nice. I, I think one of the things that was difficult for him on the campaign trail was showing up at events and not having the kind of advance work. And that's mm-hmm. no knock on his team. But like, it, yeah. you, you show up at an event uh, in Iowa with like 12 people there, and it doesn't feel like uh, the vice presidency did when you like arrive on Air Force Two. And there's been a lot of work done to like get people to show up. And so, you know, there are all those trappings. But I also think that anybody who was sitting in the presidency, if he were to look out and say like, hey, I'm at 53% or 54% approval rating. The polls in the swing states look pretty good. It's almost like you're doing a disservice to your party if you don't run for re-election, if you are popular. So I think he'll make a judgment later on about that. But I assume he's running until he's not. And I think Kamala Harris being close to him is, is as Amy suggested there, in part kind of a way of him keeping an eye on her and making sure she doesn't um, you know, get out front of him the way that he sometimes did with Obama. Right. Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, the book is Lucky, the very first book out about the 2020 election, how Joe Biden barely won the presidency. Again, if you're a political junkie like me, even if you follow the campaign uh, every day of the campaign, lived through it, you will learn a lot and love this book. Congratulations, guys. Thanks for your time on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. All right. See you soon. And that's it for today's podcast with Amy Parnes and John Allen. Their new book again is Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Trust me, it's a damn good read. You will enjoy it as much as I did. We'll be back Friday uh, next with our weekly reporters roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. In the meantime, take care of yourself. Stay strong, stay safe, and we'll see you Friday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.